2: Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at Burrow.com Acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at Burrow.com Acast. Hey,
1: it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. M.
0: Pack your bags with high quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to Quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
3: And now entered
0: the House of Mystery with your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino.
1: John
2: Copenhagen and Al Warren. Heard on KCBW six point five FM, Los Angeles. One oh two point three FM, Riverside,
1: and one
2: oh five oh AM, Palm Springs. Welcome back into the House of Mystery. I'm Al Warren. Mr. Dave Martino. I'm here. You are. I, I, think Tucker Carlson was talking about you the other day. He was? Yeah, I saw the news flash and well, he was talking about the, um, emasculated man or whatever. Oh, the, yeah. Because he said, he said in Canada, a lot of men take their wives' names or they hyphenate and have yeah. three names. And so I was thinking of you and he said, <laughs> thank he you. said, I just thought, well, you know, he's, picking on Canada because yeah. they do that I guess and I didn't I didn't realize that as something I, I was unaware of <laughs> so I, I did that in him.
3: 1995
2: well you were ahead of the game but I'm going to send him your yeah. info you don't mind you should. I'm going to forward the info so that he can <laughs> have you on maybe and talk yeah. about um why you're following the failed state of <laughs> Canada, <laughs> Canada <all right. laughs> exactly so exactly crazy stuff going on around here. So (laughs) maybe you'll be the next one he picks on. Yeah. Yeah. I welcome him. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I'm glad you do. (laughs) Anyway. Well, you see, and the the guest we have today, maybe he can tell you what to do, because he's uh, got a new book out. um, Yeah. And it's Catching a Killer. (laughs) A Reference Guide to Murder, Investigation, Past and Present. I was thinking a reference guide to murder could have called it that you know but um so Stuart Gibbon thank you for being here thanks very much Alan good to be here
3: thanks for inviting me uh
2: Stuart um let's talk about why you write these books like where did you come from you've got kind of a history in policing I believe right
3: yeah I do it goes back to to when I was literally a teenager and um many many years ago now um it, it all started out really when I was a, well I say I was our family was the victim of a crime We'd, uh, I'd been out with my mother shopping and we came home i was only a little nipper i was only a kid at this point not very old at all old enough to know right from wrong but that was about it really very naive and we came home from shopping and um when we got in the house we didn't notice we opened the front door as normal um i haven't mentioned but i was brought up in a a, a kind of working class area in the northeast of england um in a place called gateshead which is a town on the south of the river tyne You've got Newcastle-upon-Tyne on the north side of it and Gateshead's on the south. Quite a working-class area. Um, And we came home, opened the door, went in, and the place was ransacked. I mean, it was tipped upside down. All the drawers were emptied. It was really messy. They'd even taken some of the food out of the cupboards and poured it on the floor. It was just a real mess. And obviously, that upset my mother and the whole family. We never did catch who had done it, but knew quite early on it was obviously wrong what they'd done. Um, And the police came and investigated and. As a family and as a community, we kind of had an idea who was responsible, but we could never prove it, and it never went anywhere. Nobody got arrested, and they kind of got away with it. Um, that was my first experience of crime, really, particularly as a victim. Um, and I think from that point, I know, you know, when you say to people, what did you want to be when you was a kid? And people say, well, astronaut or a soccer player or whatever. Um, well, I was one of these corny kids that said I wanted to be a policeman. Um and not really thinking it would ever happen, but, you know, fast forward a few years, and I was a teenager then, sort of now I'm 14, 15, and one of our relatives worked at the local police station, so I managed to get a trip around the local nick, um, they showed me the cells and all that, so it was a fabulous experience, quite frightening actually for such a young kid, um, but it piqued my interest, and I wanted to join the police as a what they call a cadet, which is like a like, I suppose they have army cadets and things like that as well. Uh, a young person that wants to go in when they're old enough, but learns the ropes and learns a bit of discipline and a bit of the law and things like that. Um, so, I applied for my local force, which is called Northumbria Police up in the northeast of England. Um, and I also, at the same time, I, got a, I remember getting a map out of the UK and I looked at it and I kind of worked my way down from the northeast down to about the Midlands and I wrote to all the police forces to say, you know, basically, can, he, can I have a job? Are you employing police cadets? Could I come and work for you? Um, I wasn't the sort of person that went from very far from home. So I stopped at the Midlands. But the decision I made, which is to kind of direct the rest of my life, was I also wrote to London a Metropolitan Police. And I don't for this day remember why I did that, because I'd never been to London. I'd never, ever been to the capital city. Um, but I wrote to him and you probably guess what happens next. I get loads of responses from all the forces saying, thanks for your interest. It's really great. But actually, we're not taking on cadets at the moment. And the only positive response I got was from the Met in London. So I end up going down there at 16, very naive, very wet behind the ears. And I went through a selection process and I was accepted as a police cadet. And then I spent probably 18 months, two years doing all sorts of work in, you know, discipline, discipline. Bit like military, really. You know, you had to polish your boots and make your bed, and you were subject to inspections and all that sort of thing. Cleaning the toilets. Cleaning the toilet. <laughs> I remember. <I'm>, I remember. <laughs> I remember. One of the punishments was we were messing about in the canteen, and we had a we had a milkshake between us. And I tried to be clever, and I tried to pass this milkshake to my mate. And rather than pass it, I kind of threw it, and he dropped it, and it went on the floor. And the sergeant was stood by the door and saw what had happened. Uh, so 6 o'clock the next morning, we were running around the parade square carrying a telegraph pole between us, you know, one of these great big wooden structures. <laughs> that, that was kind of our punishment. But, yeah, cleaning the toilets, um, picking up the dirty washing, you name it, we was there kind of thing if you did something wrong. But it didn't do me any harm. <laughs> it, in fact, it did me quite a lot of good, really. And then I managed to um, get a get a job through that. Um, I worked, I went to the, the, the training school at Hendon in northwest London, and went through a 16-week process then. And that was tough, but it was enjoyable. Had some fun. Um, if you can imagine a 16-, 17-year-old in London um, with a load of other a load of other 16- and 17-year-olds that were allowed to, you know, we weren't supposed to drink, but of course we did. Um, we weren't supposed to go charging around, going to nightclubs and, you know, all this sort of thing, but of course we did. So it was a real eye-opener for me. Um, and I stayed down there for, for quite a few years, um, probably just under 20 in total. And I started off pounding the beat as a Bobby in uniform in London, which was fabulous. Um, interestingly enough, I got—I I was posted to Wembley because it was one of the only places I knew. I'd, I was i was a big soccer fan and I knew Wembley Stadium. That's where they had all the big finals and the football matches. Of course, they still do. So I ended up getting posted to Wembley, uh, which was a great place to work, really. And, and yeah, I got a chance to please some of the big soccer games and rugby games and all that sort of thing as well. Um And then after just under 20 years, I I had a family then and got married. So we decided to move away from London and we relocated in the Midlands um, where I spent another sort of 10, 12 years working again in the police. Um, A little bit of it was in uniform, but most of it was as a detective. Um, I got promoted a few times and then eventually for quite a few years, I was kind of in charge of the murder cases in the area. Um, So, again, that was a real eye opener, a real challenge uh, but really, really interesting, um, and that's how I ended up. That was my last kind of specialist role before I before I left the police. When you're when you're doing that,
2: what was what was the most um, surprising thing when you started detective and, and dealing with murder and stuff like that? What, what what shocked you the
3: most? I think really, I'll tell you what surprised me the most <laughs> before it shocked me was the amount of. Um, Certainly when I got promoted and I was in charge of these cases rather than just one of the detectives on the team going out, you know, arresting people and things was the amount of bureaucracy and the amount of paperwork and things like that was involved. I couldn't quite get my head around that because you watch things on TV, you know, and you see the, the, the lead detective charging around and they do everything, don't they? They're at, the, <laughs> they're, they're at the crime scene and they're having a look at the body and then they're, they're, chasing, they're chasing the culprits down, the perpetrators down the, you know, the, the road and that sort of thing. Far from it when you become, once you get promoted to management ranks, certainly in the UK anyway, once you become a, de- a detective inspector, like a DI or a DCI, um, it's all sitting behind, a, well, not all of it, but it, an awful lot of it is sitting behind a computer um, and managing things. And you, you oversee the whole process, you know, and you make the key decisions. But everybody else does all the charging around on your behalf. So a lot of the fun I had as a detective was actually at, at the lower ranks, where I was hands-on. And I was able to make those arrests and I was able to sit opposite the killer um, in in an interview room and look him in the eye because once I got promoted, I didn't get that opportunity anymore. I was asking other people to do it for me. Um, So that was quite a a surprise for me. I had hoped that as I got promoted and became more and more um, involved in the management that I'd still be able to do that. But there's no way you can do it because you've just got so many other balls that you're juggling that you just have to literally... I, I liken it to like the conductor of an orchestra. So you're kind of making sure every all the music is in tune, but actually you're not playing an instrument. You're just making sure that nobody drops the clangers or drops the drumstick or things like that. You know, you're just keeping everything moving. Um, so that's probably, probably one of the things that surprised me a little bit. Um, and, and the one thing that sort of shocked me, I suppose, was the, the way people who commit those sort of crimes appear to have no kind of remorse um, and no real thought behind what they're doing and obviously you can imagine i dealt with some of the most horrendous crimes murder is a murder and someone's lost their life and, and, and i had to go and meet the families and explain to them that we would do everything we could to, to find these killers and bring them to justice um but just the level of violence that some people are prepared to go to for what on the face of it is actually kind of would appear to be an isolation quite minor but it's just almost the straw that broke the camel's back. It's something else has happened on top of maybe one or two other things that makes people just go off on one. And, and I, I did find that that was often the case. So much unnecessary violence used to the point where people, you know, lost their lives or that they were actually treated in such a way that you wouldn't imagine anybody being able to treat another human being like that.
2: Yeah, yeah. And and I guess because you use Stephen Wade in the book, so you're you're covering – uh, you know um, catching a killer from the past right through till now and i guess things have changed a lot in policing over the years there's so much more dna and all this different thing that keeps coming along
3: yeah there is you're, you're absolutely right i mean obviously my, myself and Stephen, we we first met um in 2015 so we've not known each, we've known each other getting on for 10 years not quite but and we met um because when I left the police, I know I do a lot of, I do bits and pieces, but I go to writing conferences and things like that, and I talk as a speaker as well, Um, and I was chairing um, a panel of crime writers. This sounds like the start of a joke, doesn't it? A a former detective and three crime writers walk into a bar, and what happens next kind of thing, but I I was chairing this, um, this panel of crime writers, and I met Stephen, and we had a chat afterwards, and it, I think it was Stephen who said to me, do you fancy writing a book? And I kind of just looked at him and said, I have no idea where to start writing a book. I've never written a book as such before. And he said, well, I've written quite a few. And and that's where the idea came from, from writing about crime, true crime, splitting it historically and, and contemporary. And as I say, we'd written a couple of books before. Um, in fact, Catching a Killer is actually book number six. Um, but you're right in what you say, the changes. I mean, even the changes since I joined, I joined in the 1980s. And where we are now to where we are then, wow, what a difference. I mean, when I first joined and we were investigating crime, it was a lot of walking around, knocking on doors and talking to people. I mean, we didn't have mobile phones. We didn't have really have computers. The closed-circuit television, the cameras, there weren't that many. And forensic-wise, well, I mean, you, as you say, you can forget about DNA until well into the late 80s for us and even into the 90s, really. 1880s? As it, as <laughs> yeah, it's, it, I tell you, it, see, it seems that long ago. It really does. What they can, do, obviously, what they can do now with DNA, and and now I say to people when they say how has criminal investigation changed and murder investigation as well, how has it changed now to when you first joined me in nineteen eighties? And it's like chalk and cheese, really. I mean, it's now a digital world. So, I mean, I say some of the things that, that catch killers now, obviously forensics is huge. It really is massive. Um, but obviously digital is as well because everybody's got on the internet, everybody's got mobile phones to take pictures of things. Um, there's lots of digital work goes on now. Um, and I say mobile phones are probably one of the things that often lead to people's downfalls. I dealt with a murder case um, probably about 10 years ago um, just to give you an idea of the thinking behind people that commit these sort of crimes, and we we seized all the computers and the mobile phones from the from the house, um, and we started to get them examined. And obviously, in in the UK, you, you're a bit limited with resources. You can't just give them to somebody and say, "Can you get me them back tomorrow?" It takes a little while for them to work through it and find what's on there. But we did find some internet usage, and it had been deleted from the actual computer. It was it was um, kind of Google-type searches, and they were so incriminating. It was literally like, um, what sort of food can you give someone that will kill them but won't show up on a (laughs) post-mortem? How how do you commit the perfect murder? I mean, you couldn't make it up. It was almost like watching a TV, you know, a a fictional drama about it. It was so incriminating. And it was the killer who eventually we were able to convict who'd been searching this sort of thing, premeditated clearly before she killed It was a woman, actually, before she killed her partner in a cold-blooded way. But this was all pre-planned. And, of course, she pressed the delete button and just thought, well, that's it. It's gone now forever. But, of course, these things aren't. They always leave a digital footprint um, and you're able to recover them. Uh, And it's the same with mobile phones. You know, the amount of people that threaten other people on a mobile phone then delete the text or send them a voicemail message, you know, threatening to kill them, telling them exactly what they're going to do to them. Then they delete the message. And, and think that that's going to be the end of it. It's, you know, it's not traceable. And so I'd say the digi- it's a digital world nowadays. And I do feel for investigators because they've really got their work cut out because often a murder might take place. And before you can do anything about it, investigative-wise, it's on the internet. Somebody's filmed it. You know, somebody's filming the crime scene. They might even have filmed the act itself or the events leading up to it. And the, and the, the investigators have got the job of finding that information and, and dragging it into the 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 incident room and and dealing with it and trying to track down people who are potentially witnesses uh, you know and of course that that generates misinformation which then obviously sends sometimes sends the detectives off in a completely different direction so I do feel from I think it was a lot it was it's never been easy to solve a murder people say to me well it is easy isn't it because most people who kill somebody else they're known to each other aren't they well yeah they are in a lot of cases you know the majority of homicides or murders are committed by someone that has some prior association with the victim. You know, the victim and offender often known to each other or they've had some kind of contact. It might even just be on the internet or some other way, but they've, they've got, had contact. But proving it to a standard that you know, it gets somebody convicted at a court is, is another different level. And you, what you don't want is someone to walk free on a technicality. So there's quite a bit of pressure, even from the time that the killer is caught and charged with the offence. You know they've got to that. that's sometimes where the investigation only starts really rather than the end of it
2: so have the changes over the years and uh, with technology and such has has it made it easier to solve crimes, or has it become actually more complicated?
3: I think it's become more complicated. it does help, but of course every time the police come up with a method to try and identify a way of catching somebody, the criminals, as is often the case these days can be sometimes one step ahead. So I think it helps because there's more available to the police now. But all it means is that they've got to have more resources. And as you're probably aware that there have been quite a lot of cuts in, certainly in in the UK, in terms of the resources that are available, not just to deal with investigating crime, but also to deal with policing in general. So uh, it's just more and more kind of... um, work that, that that they have to deal with. So it means, in effect, that sometimes when people say, I never see a police officer anymore, I can't remember the last time I saw a police officer, they're probably in an office somewhere downloading a mobile phone or looking at the data that's recovered from a mobile phone or maybe they're watching CCTV footage looking for evidence and things like that. So the demands on the officers now are probably even more so than they were when I first joined the police. Um, but I think it, it it certainly helps having these Um, the DNA is just such a huge thing. And of course, what that does now is it means that cases that going back decades and now when the police have the resources and they're able to do it in different parts of the UK, they can reinvestigate those cases. And sometimes it means that they'll find a bit of DNA now. Um, When I first joined and DNA became a thing, if you like, um, you needed quite a lot of material to get a DNA profile from it. Um, Whereas now you, you don't even need to see it. It's microscopic. As long as you can see it under a microscope, you may be able to generate some DNA from it. So there's there's more tools forensically available now to be able to help people to solve crime. But I think it's still really challenging because I think just, it's just the internet and social media in general. It can be so useful, but it can be so ha- uh, unhelpful as well um, if you get the wrong people on there who you know just want to spread the misinformation and make it more difficult for the the law enforcement to do their job, really.
2: Right. Well, I'd imagine um, with today's, uh, could you imagine uh, today's world of technology, you know, 100 years ago or even longer, if, you know, the time when Jack the Ripper was around or stuff like that, um, you'd have so many more possibilities
3: of discovering murderers. You certainly, yeah, you certainly would. Absolutely. Yeah, you would. And And, and I think then as well, there's, one of the one of the big things that came in for, for murder investigation in particular is something called Holmes. Is that is that something you're familiar with, Alan at all? The Holmes no, no, I don't think so. Holmes is as as in Sherlock Holmes, but it, it it's it's an acronym. The police love acronyms. If you chuck an acronym what well, if they can have an acronym, <laughs> they'll have it. Even if it doesn't make sense, they'll have it. Um so so I think somebody's probably thought Holmes was a good one and and it's all right actually because you think of Sherlock Holmes crime detection but it stands for Home Office uh, Large Major Inquiry System and what it is um, I remember I listened to your interview when we did with Stephen Wade and it was a great interview and I think you touched on Peter Sutcliffe didn't you the Yorkshire Ripper yeah 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 well that that particular case there were a lot of mistakes made there um and a lot of them were because of the way the case was managed in terms of what well, it was all done on pen and paper, really. And um little carousels in the middle of the room. Well, the problem with pen and paper is it gets lost. It gets damaged and it gets misplaced. Um and I think they, they, they definitely missed opportunities to get Sutcliffe earlier than they could have done, potentially, and he went on to kill further people. And it was partly because of the way it was managed with the home The home system didn't exist then. It was basically pen and paper. Um, and as a result of that case and another case um, in London, the home system was brought in. And it's, it's basically just a computer system, but it's a brilliant computer system. And anything that – any piece of paper, any, uh, any physical exhibit – Anything at all, any intelligence that comes into a murder case in particular, will go into the Holmes room. It's the incident room where everything happens, and you have typists and indexers and specialists that input that information into the Holmes database, and it gets kept in there. Everything gets cross-referenced and indexed. And basically, if I, as a senior detective, want to look at the statements, they'll be in a hard copy somewhere, but they'll also be on the Holmes database. So I can just log on, and I can read through all the information, And the great thing is, if we have another murder in another county, those two home systems can link up together and they can talk to each other. And I think a lot of the problems with a serious crime in the UK, going back to the sort of 70s, 1970s, maybe the 1980s as well, uh, was that that, that offenders travelled, they used the motorway, you know, the road system to commit crime and they'd, they'd drop off into villages and things and the police couldn't keep up with them. They couldn't link the things together. Whereas with homes, it makes it a lot more easier uh, and it's just a system that now makes investigating murder in particular, but kidnap uh, serious crime. It just makes it that bit easier because, you know, all the information is in one place. And as long as it goes into that room, there's no chance that it's going to get lost. You know, and, and hopefully you're not going to miss anything um, like happened on some of those high profile cases before.
2: Yeah. 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 Something America could use. But I, I don't think there's enough unity in the police forces uh, to do such a thing. but.
3: Yeah, that could be a, that could be a problem, but it's, yeah. it's it's certainly made a big difference. I mean, they're, they're now on I don't know version five, six, maybe even more now. They just keep updating it. But it's um, once you learn how to manage the system, it's um, it, it really is useful because, as I say, if you if only if you've got a nickname or a part registration part index of a vehicle, you can just put information into Homes and it'll spit stuff out for you. Um, you know, which might give you some help. And it was something that was sort of kind of drastically lacking with um, with some of the high profile cases, in in particular the the, the Ripper case, because I think I remember you were talking we were talking about that uh, bogus tape that was sent to the incident room when Stephen Wade was on with you.
2: Oh yeah, yeah, oh yeah,
3: yeah. The chap from the chap from the Northeast had kind of rung up, and um, and that what that thing was basically something in. And crime detection in the UK called the ABC principle is that is that something you've ever heard of in the in the States or anything no
2: we barely know how
3: to write so. <laughs> <laughs> it's um it's something that detectives are, t- are taught from day one of their kind of induction and their training but A- ABC is very simple it, it what it tells you to do is just, uh, assume nothing believe nobody and check everything it's the ABC of everything so One of the big things that you don't try to do when you're investigating a case, in particular murders, is to make assumptions. You know, you can have your own theories about things, that's quite healthy, but you never assume. And I think one of the big problems on on the Yorkshire Ripper case was that George Oldfield, the superintendent, bless him, um, he put all his eggs in one basket. And I can understand they must have been under an awful lot of pressure. But when that tape came in, he said, our suspect is from the northeast of England and then so he ruled out everybody in the case that wasn't potentially a suspect that wasn't from the North East. Of course, Sutcliffe was from Yorkshire, which isn't really the North East, right. and um, he'd been interviewed several times during the course of the investigation, but because of the parameters that were drawn out, one of which said, our suspect is from the North East, with a North accent, of course he was ruled out, and I think it was really only by chance when he was with a, a sex worker at Sutcliffe, um, in, a, in an isolated location, and two uniformed officers actually came across him accidentally, um, and they had a chat with him, and I think there was something wrong with his vehicle, the, the registration number wasn't quite right, and Sutkhoff said he had to go to the loo, so he, he relieved himself in some bushes nearby, and um, when he came back, he was eventually arrested, and when they went back to the scene later on, they f- they found that he'd he discarded a a hammer in the bushes where he'd allegedly gone to relieve himself, right. and it kind of sno- snow snowboarded on from there, really. Um, so it's sort of you know it just shows you that um, sometimes it's it's a bit of luck that you you need to solve a case, um, and that's always useful, really. Yeah,
2: but it's important. I, I I would imagine the personal touch, like the actual police detective being out in the field and meeting people and and getting a feel for where the murder happened and and the the neighbors and the friends and the family and everything that's still really key or important in an investigation i would imagine
3: it is it's vital you're absolutely right yeah you could like i said it before about getting stuck behind a computer you do but you've got to get out there i always used to make a point as a senior detective as, as to you know some people used to do everything by video they used to get their forensics the csi to go And they still do that now. They record the scene and then they play it at a briefing uh, at the police station so everybody can watch it. But you've you've got to go and sample it for yourself because, you know, you're thinking all the time when you're there and you're looking around. and, And actually what often happens as well, suspects often come back to the scene as well to see what's going on. You know, they don't always just run off and disappear. They might come back to the scene and mingle amongst the crowd of onlookers. So the things that you pick up by, by sampling, as you quite rightly say, go to the scene and look around. You know, there's been times where people have revisited the scene and they've identified a very small private CCTV camera you know, on the side of a building that nobody was aware of, you know, and that could provide you with vital evidence. And like you say, there's nothing the family need to need to see who's in charge of this case. They need to actually have that conversation with you and you, they need to be able to kind of understand who's dealing with it and what can and can't be done. So I think it's vitally important that you don't lose that connection with a bereaved family because it makes a big difference. And and as far as the scene goes and where these sort of things happen, it's an. I think for me, it's an absolute must. I know some detectives who who wouldn't do it. They do everything virtually, if you like. But I think for me, it was always one of those, I'm going to make time to go there, not just to to meet the people that are involved, but to actually see what this place looks like, because I want to be there. I want to sample it. I want to put myself in that position, because then I know what it's like. And and photographs and videos and all the other things they have with the drones and everything else nowadays, yeah. it's help, It's helpful as a briefing tool, but it never really gives you that first-hand knowledge and experience that you need, to, that you need as an investigator, I think.
2: Yeah, no, it's, it's, I think it's all helpful, but I, there's something about um someone that works in a job or someone that goes out and um knows the location because then you know the possibilities of what could or couldn't happen much better than you would off of a picture or a, even a a drone i i think um so much of the today's uh, you know misinformation and disinformation a lot of it I think going around is because of that there's so many people that see or see something online but they have no idea what it's like to be in that place the size the shape how it goes and what the people are like so it's 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 harder um to to get the real feel for it I think it's really important
3: yeah I think you're right yeah there's nothing there's nothing like the first-hand experience um because like you say it's people miss things they they interpret things in a different way and you can see things on a on a on a on an image that it doesn't give you any real sense of the kind of what that place is like until you actually go there um and we always used to do kind of revisits as well because sometimes by the time you got to these places it was maybe one or two hours later maybe more and things had changed so we always used to make sure we did it at exactly the same time the following day so that you know that person that's delivering the milk or that person that's delivering the papers that we missed, right. you know, is back back on their, round, on their round the next day because they've got a routine. You know, that person that just happens to be there, you might not see him again um, unless you kind of do this quite thoroughly. So it's really important. And I, we always used to say, I used to say to the officers that I work with, with a crime scene, in terms of forensics and, and interpreting it and just looking at it, you only get one chance to do it properly. You know, and and people used to say, well, you know, you examine it and you forensically examine it and then you can release the scene. But actually, you only release that scene when you're satisfied that you've got everything from it that you can have. And that's why sometimes crime scenes will remain in place for days, sometimes even weeks, because it's so difficult to to properly examine. Certainly a large outdoor scene, you know, you could be missing vital evidence if you're not if you don't do it in a fingertip systematic fashion. So I think it's really important to be as thorough and once that crime scene is released and that crime tape is removed, you can put it back on again a few minutes or hours later, but potentially you've lost evidence there and you will always be challenged by defence, a court saying, you know, you didn't have that on permanently for that length of time. Therefore, someone, you know, my client or whoever has had the opportunity, um, you know, somebody's had the opportunity to contaminate it so you can't prove that it's, is is my um, my client that's responsible. Yeah. So you've got to get things absolutely spot on because when you go to court, these things will be examined. I mean, in, in the in the heat of the moment when you exactly when you're dealing with a murder, you, you end up at court normally over a year later, and of course the barristers will go through it with a fine tooth comb looking for errors and discrepancies in the evidence. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, it could just be. Um, Something procedural that's not quite been done right, but if it provides the jury with an element of doubt, you know it could result in um people not being convinced that that person has committed that crime and obviously that's a what you want to do is if you've got the right person, you want to make sure that you know they're, that they're convicted of that crime right the, the The legal system's gotten so convoluted sometimes
2: you know it's so it's so um i don't know it can be very complicated and I think out of touch with a lot of Common
3: people. I think it is. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, I was. I got. Um. I was asked to go on a jury. Did a jury service in the UK a few years ago. Um. But it was literally only, probably about six months after I'd left the police service. So, and it was in my local area. Well, of course, I was convicting people. I was going to court and giving evidence. So it probably wasn't the best thing for me to be sitting on a jury at that moment in time. Um. So uh, because of my background and the fact that I'd literally just left the police. I was excused from that jury service. Um, But it's something I'd quite like to do in the future as well. But I think you're absolutely right. People get, you know, I think sometimes the barristers and the people that present these cases make it so complicated that jurors don't really understand what exactly is going on. And and they need to understand the basic facts because they're making some huge decisions which will affect lots of people's lives in the future. Um, And it's all got a bit too procedural, too. Um, uh, it needs to be right, and it needs to be fair and proper, but I think there's there 's an awful lot involved in the, in those systems nowadays that Jews just don 't really understand because, like you and i, they 're members of the public right. who 've had pro- probably not really any training, probably don 't know an awful lot about the law, and they 're there to just look at the evidence and make a decision you know based on that evidence as to what they what they honestly think. May or may not have happened well so it, um, it, it kind think. of creates a, a division in a, in a sense because as it
2: gets more complicated, it seems more distant, it doesn't really seem like it's something for me you know as as a just a regular guy, regular joe i I feel very distant um from how it works, and it seems it seems to be too much to to bother with. you know what I mean
3: I do, yeah, I know exactly what you mean yeah there's there's an awful lot of time spent. In, in criminal c- trials uh, uh, talking talking legal, if you like, so having legal arguments, you know talking about evidence and uh, uh, this, these are important factors, but what they have to do is they have to send the jury out because they can 't listen to it because it might prejudice their views, so you do find in the u k that juries spend an awful lot of time not even sitting in the courtroom but sitting in their you know their s- separate room, waiting for the barristers to uh, uh, you know have a sort of an argument and, and, and put their points toward, forward for the judge, a lot of which is actually legal process, um, which is important, don't get me wrong, it's all important. But I think you're right when you say the juries feel a bit removed from all that and you don't quite understand what's going on, but they, but they realise that they're not, they're not listening to the evidence, they're out in another room, and then they're backwards, backwards and forwards quite a few times throughout the course of a trial. Um, and I think sometimes, and the other thing you do get is, you know, we talked about DNA earlier on there, we touched on it. Well, you'll get the police putting forward some DNA evidence and saying, you know, there's, there's probably a, a one in one billion chance that this DNA doesn't belong to the suspect or the defendant. But with forensic evidence, you'll often always get the defence putting forward another expert right. who will argue, who'll argue differently <laughs> and say, well, actually, you know, is it not right that this could be the case? And, that be- and, and there's where the element of doubt comes in again. So I think sometimes juries get stuck in the middle you know, they're told one thing and they think, well, that sounds reasonable. Then somebody else gets in the, the witness box and says something that's different that may or may not be plausible. And then they get kind of caught in between the two. So I can understand somebody in a jury on a relatively, you know, even even a fairly straightforward case. If it's a serious case, must, their heads must be spinning as to, you know, what exactly they're supposed to be listening to and whether they can actually get their heads around it. It must be a very, very difficult job to do. And um but, but one with so much responsibility, because you're, you know, as a group of 12 men and women, you're responsible for, you know, the fate of that person, and obviously the victim in the case as well, you know, you're making decisions that are going to impact on other people's lives, probably for quite some time. Is there, is there quite a distance
2: um, between police and and common people now in the UK? Like, there's there's a lot of issues we could say with with american policing um and all the shootings and all the different things going on so there's like you know backlash and people back and forth and people love or hate cops there's all this stuff you know everyone has to say something (laughs) so yeah um, do you you feel the same there or is it still pretty are they still pretty close
3: with their policing no it's 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 a real shame and i feel really sad about it but i think i think it's going in a similar direction here um we've we 've had all these awful things happening recently, especially in London, not just in london but high profile there 's been in London where serving police officers have committed the most horrendous crimes rape murder etc um, and they 've been identified but obviously they 've been they 've been able to do that whilst serving as police officers, so that the confidence and trust in the police in particular in London at the minute is is without question at an all time low um, and it 's mainly um Women who feel this because the, the individuals who have been identified as committing the rapes and murders have been abusing women over a period of time. So I think it's at an all-time low, and I think that we've got a new. There's a new commissioner in charge of the Metropolitan Police now, who's got his work cut out. They've literally just completed a report called the Casey Report, which is nicknamed after uh, named after Baroness Casey. She she compiled the report, and it's a, it's a damning damning report on the state of policing particularly in London at the moment, where, you know, there, no, very few people appear to have confidence in the police. And even to the point where women are saying that if something happens to them and they're attacked or they're, they're assaulted, they don't feel confident enough to call the police about it, which is, a, for me, is like the worst thing you can hear because the police are there to protect people. And obviously when things like this happen, it's such a huge breach of trust. So I think... F- Slightly different to the to the firearm side of it, but on such a serious level as well. I think the UK is, is at the moment in a very serious place and at a crossroads as to whether it's going to go one way or the other. And I just hope and pray that it actually goes the right way in terms of the trust and confidence and that we can restore some faith. Because there are a lot of people in the police in the UK who do a brilliant job. You know, they run towards danger, as in the U.S. as well. They run towards danger, not away from it. And they're there to help people, and that's why they joined the service. But you have this minority of really bad apples who have committed, some of them, the most awful crimes whilst serving as an officer. And that's something that you can't really forgive. And and obviously people don't forget that. So in a similar position, I would say. And that's really sad because when I joined, you know, there were people in the police in the 1980s who were very politically incorrect You know, there was quite a bit of sexism and a bit of racism and that sort of thing, which is totally wrong. But then we move into these sort of realms now where we're looking at misogyny, um, homophobia and uh, abusing women and committing the most serious crimes. I think it's, you know, it's a real kind of a really a real turning point for the police in the UK completely, not just the not just the London police. Right.
2: Right so when you guys put together this book and and even the series of books um, what is it you're going for what is
3: it you want people to to get out of the book well when we first started writing them I say like that conversation with Stephen about should we write a book it was because we thought there was nothing on the shelves on the bookshelves in the UK it was really aimed at crime writers to help them with their procedure because there's so much information about how things should be done and obviously Stephen covers the historical side but then we found out that there's such a big true crime community not just in the uk but in other countries as well so we we fill the books full of case studies as well um and we're just really targeting the, the true crime community and anybody that writes crime because obviously if you're writing crime fiction um it's it's really important to to get your facts right because somebody'll pick it up one day and read it and think well that's not quite right it might put them off reading it so we're targeting not just the true crime community but but writers in general and particular crime writers in the UK um and hoping that with all the case studies and all the law and the procedural stuff that we put in there you know there seems to be a a need for it and we've certainly had some good feedback from the books and uh, the catching a killer one was literally just I I shall cover contemporary from the moment an emergency call comes in till the court case. And Stephen will talk a little bit more historically about, you know, how murder has changed over the decades and centuries and how crime used to be committed. We've just put those two aspects together and hope we've come up with something that, that interests a lot of people across the crime genre.
2: I guess murder really has it, it, it changed, or it does. And I, I
3: forget where I heard that.
2: Someone said, "Well, every time they invent something new, uh, humans have to figure out how to kill someone with it." You know, grinder, like all these, the grinder killer and stuff, like all these things
3: out there. Uh, it's a whole new outlook. It is, yeah. And you do find now that there's there's more and more. And I'm sure it's the same in the states and other countries. There's more and more crimes that are linked to the Internet or dating apps and things like that. Right. It might be that, that, that the offender and the victim beat each other on those apps, or it might be that you know the that, that, that the suspect is trawling sites and identifying vulnerable people that they might be able to then go on and, and kill or attack. Um, it's just, like you say, it's opened up a whole new arena for people to abuse systems that were set up in the first place for people to meet each other, um, get on with each other, uh, and not commit crime but of course criminals being criminals will will jump on that as a, as a new means of being able to you know not necessarily without even having to leave the house to just sit there and obviously <laughs> they, will, they, yeah. they will need to leave the house to commit the crime but to actually to, to research who they're going to kill and why and that sort of thing they can do it all on a screen in front of them and nobody will know anything about that you know until such time as it's reported in the news and then you start working back um but, yeah, the, the, the grinder was interested. I know you've written a book on that. Um, it's something I'll be reading in the future for definite. But <laughs> that was a case I, I commented on for national TV because of the mistakes that were made yeah. by the police in, the, in that case. And, again, we go back to the ABC, don't make assumptions, don't assume that that individual found outside his block of flats, you know, overdosed on GHB, the date rape drug, yeah. has taken an overdose himself, you know, link, link these things together. And there's a saying in, in the U.K., for detectives is think murder unless you can prove otherwise. And that's from the very first moment that you deal with a death. You know, don't think it's six months down the line because you'd have lost so much evidence and that the offender, as in the case of Port, will have gone on to kill several other people in the meantime. You know, it's just, I just feel for the families, um, as, I, as I often do with these cases, because they're, you know, they can see, and obviously when they had the inquest, it was quite scathing about, what had gone wrong, and they are absolutely right. You know, these things... And the other thing that happened, they weren't, it wasn't dealt with by trained homicide detectives in, in London. It was dealt with by the local borough command who have had a certain amount of training, but they're not specialist detectives that deal with these things on a daily basis. And I think that showed as well in some of the inexperience and some of the decisions that were made to not do things and to assume that, you know, these are, these are suicides or drug overdoses when actually this man was just killing people at will at the time yeah
2: well dealing with with um you know uh, coming across criminals murderers and and people who are you know not quite on the level during during uh, your daily life of working uh, as a police officer and, and as a detective do you um do you find that that you take that into your personal life and become more cynical
3: yeah very much so yeah <laughs> absolutely yeah absolutely hugely yeah. Um, I don't think you can do anything but, to be honest with you. I think it's just, it's like if you deal with something once in isolation, you could put it down to experience and you think, well, you know, that's happened and, you know, but when you're dealing with it on a daily basis and you're seeing the sort of people that you're dealing with and what they're capable of and what they've done, you just, you just develop this kind of, almost like a hard cynical edge and it's very difficult to, to when you leave the service to kind of divorce yourself from that approach. You still hold it, but, you've just still got to remember that there's so many good people out there. And I think it's it's like this. It's like you're dealing with murder every day. You're dealing with homicide every single day. You're going home and you're, it's, in your, it's in your mind and you're going back the next day. And it's it's one of the reasons why I left in the end because I'd done my time. I was ready to go. I'd, I'd been there for over 30 years in total and I was ready. And, and I can imagine dealing with that sort of thing on a daily basis does have an impact on you as well from a mental health point of view and a family point of view because you're living it all the time. And there comes a point where you just have to draw that line and let somebody else take it on. But you do become, unfortunately, pretty cynical, um, and it's really difficult. And you have to make it an effort not to think that everybody's like that. You know, I'm not not saying everybody's a murderer. I I just mean everybody's capable of something like Mm. that. Because actually, there are so many good people out there. But the people who do this sort of thing kind of taint everybody else by their own actions. Yeah, it's crazy, actually. And and I
2: I know, I know. uh retired cop too that way. And then anytime uh, we're out with him at something like that, he, um, he can hear a rapper being taken off a package in a store a mile away. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, he's always looking for people doing something wrong.
3: Yeah. I'm, I'm exactly the same. I mean, I, I live in a cul-de-sac. It's nowhere, you know, go in, you it's only one way in and out. Well, I, I, you know, I must spend more time looking out of my window than <laughs> I do most other things because if a, if a car comes in, I know all the cars in the neighborhood um, I mean, our crime rate, Touchwood, is fairly low, very low compared to some parts of the UK. But even so, if I see a strange vehicle driving around slowly, and I've, be, I've been known to pick up the phone and, and you know, and, and call, <laughs> call my, my old colleagues to just say, look, can you come and have a look at this? Because you do get that sixth sense. You know, I, I, I see a car acting suspiciously, and other people might not pay too much attention to it, but I'm probably a bit more twitchy. just comes with experience, I think, to be honest with you.
2: Yeah, yeah, I would guess. So how do people, uh, do you do social media? Do you have things set up, a website
3: uh, for the books or for yourself? How do people find you? Yeah, they can find me um, in one or two different ways. Uh, Well, three in total, I guess. I've got a website, which is www.gibconsultancy.co.uk. On there, you'll find a little bit about me. You'll find all the information about the books and one or two other bits. I do quite a bit of media work as well, so I tend to put some bits on there as well about that. I'm also on Twitter and Facebook as uh, G.I.B. Consultancy. That's the, that's the business name I use. Um, I'm a crime writing consultant, so I work with fiction authors as well, helping them with their accuracy and authenticity. And obviously, as you know, I do a little bit of writing as well around true crime with uh, at the moment with Stephen Wade. So I've got my fingers in one or two pies, and hopefully that will be the case for, for a little while to come yet anyway. Yeah, and when you're not writing, you're looking out the window. <laughs> well, I, yeah, well, I, some, sometimes I even write and look out the window almost at the same time, <laughs> <laughs> which I can tell you that takes some practice. Yeah, I, I'd,
2: I'd say, yeah, he's got lots going on. Well,
3: I'm known as, I'm known as the nosy neighbor. <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, we appreciate you coming on the show. Of course, the book is called Catching a Killer. And our guest is the author, one of the authors of that book, Stuart Given. Thank you for
3: being here. Thanks very much for inviting me. Take care, both. Thanks, Stuart. You've
0: been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me?